Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, she's one of our favorites. We lean on her for sound legal advice, but she is not your lawyer, so nothing she says should be considered legal advice to you. Uh, Senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com, a member of the bar in good standing. She's a lawyer. She's smarter than us. We're going to have her explain this ruling to us like we're five years old. M. Carpenter back on her tell. How are you, ma'am? I'm very well, Andrew. Thank you. How are you? I'm just having a habeas kind of day. How about you? (laughs) I've had better. Uh, Okay, so the Supreme Court came out with this ruling. Uh, I follow a lot of what we kind of jokingly call law Twitter, uh, kind of a collection of our various lawyer friends online for good reason, because they give good perspective on a lot of things. I've never seen uniform outrage at a ruling like this. Like we've seen divisive stuff like the abortion stuff over the last few weeks. Like every single lawyer I follow and talk to was just like, what is this? I was that the same reaction you got from this court ruling uh, in this uh, Arizona Department of Corrections ruling? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It it made me very angry. It was um, I've been very angry at the Supreme Court a lot lately. And and this one may have (laughs) put me over the top. I've defended the court as an institution quite a quite a bit over the years and, you know, argued against saying that all justices are, are partisan and that they're only ruling in their ideological uh, druthers. And uh, this this makes that very difficult to, to continue. OK, what is it about this case? Because and by the way, this was progressive lawyers. This was uh, conservative lawyers, like all of them were like, we don't like this one. So let's let's get into the nitty gritty of this ruling. Um, it was a six three ruling. just where do you even want to start with this because it's complicated you basically have two guys that are on death row out in arizona this is not a conviction hearing this is a hearing about their representation walk us through it kind of slowly so we're not know what we're dealing with before they get to the supreme court why is this kind of a hearing important explain habeas to folks and kind of just give us the background here okay uh yeah so Let's say you're on trial in state court for a crime and you have a bad lawyer, doesn't investigate your case, crucial facts that could show your innocence, they're never presented to the jury. So this and lots of mistakes are made, you're convicted, you go to prison. You go through all your direct appeals, the, you know, the appeal stage right after trial and you lose them all. Um, so your conviction at that point is final. And, then, and now you are in what they call the post-conviction stage. And that's kind of confusing maybe to a lay person because you probably think of conviction 
is happening when the trial is over and you're found guilty, you're convicted. But technically, you're not post-conviction until all of your direct appeals are exhausted. Um, usually that means you've gone all the way up to your state's highest court, their state Supreme Court, um, and all of your appeals have been denied. You are now, your conviction is final. So now you're in the post-conviction stage, and most state courts allow you to file a, post a petition for post-conviction relief. And some states call it a habeas, um, and it's also called a habeas at the federal level, habeas corpus, petition for writ of habeas corpus, which is basically get me back before the court. I have things that I want to, to raise. Um, so you file for your post-conviction relief in state court and you have a new lawyer, but he's also a bad lawyer and he doesn't bring up the fact that you had a bad lawyer at your trial. In other words, he does not raise the ineffective assistance of counsel argument for you at your post-conviction hearing. So you, you exhaust your state post-conviction efforts and you've lost those and, and you're, you now have to move on to the next stage, which is to file a habeas corpus in federal court. And finally you say, hey, my conviction is wrong because I had an ineffective lawyer who did not do their job. Now, normally you cannot raise an issue for the first time at the federal habeas proceeding. If you didn't raise it in state court, then you have forfeited your right to bring it up in federal court and that's called procedural default. But back in 2011 in Martinez versus Ryan, the court had said there was an exception to this and that's the sixth amendment right to counsel. And that makes sense. If your post conviction lawyer failed to argue that your trial counsel was ineffective, then your post-conviction lawyer was also ineffective. So it's not really your fault that the issue wasn't raised. So Martinez says you can go ahead and raise it for the first time during your federal habeas petition. So here comes Justice Thomas and his merry band of conservative justices in this week's opinion. And they say that Martinez may allow you to bring that claim of ineffective counsel that your previous bad lawyers didn't raise, but, but we're not gonna let you present any evidence to prove it. So let that sink in. You can go into court and say, but I, I didn't have an effective lawyer and the courts won't let you put any evidence on. And I said, well, what is the chances do you think that they're going to agree with you that you had an effective lawyer at trial when they're not going to let you prove that in any way? So but they rely, the court is relying on USC 2254E2, which is the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act from 1996, which is the law that says federal court can't hold an evidentiary hearing on a petitioner's claim that was not brought up in state court. But that law was in effect in 2011 when Martinez came out. So Martinez, you know, kind of recognized an exception to that. Um, but here's the rub. There is no constitutional right to counsel for post-conviction proceedings. Once your direct appeals are done and your conviction is final, you don't have that triggered Sixth Amendment right to counsel for a habeas proceeding. They're actually considered like quasi-civil procedures. Um, so, you know, your lawyer in that stage, if that if they mess up, the court says that's attributed to you. It's not actually your fault, but it's now your fault legally. Your lawyer's poor performance is your fault. And that's not actually a new concept. A lawyer's mistakes can be held against their clients. That's not unusual. You know, if you um, somebody files a lawsuit against you and you hire a lawyer and they drag their feet, don't file an answer in time and you get a default judgment against you, you know, 
it's held against you even though it was your lawyer's mistake. That's not a new concept, but there has been an exception when the mistake is because of a constitutionally ineffective counsel. So what the court said here in this opinion is that because there is no right to counsel in a habeas or in post-conviction relief, then it can't be a constitutionally ineffective counsel argument because you didn't have a constitutional right to have that counsel, even though the ineffectiveness is going back to your trial court. The fact that your post-conviction lawyer didn't bring it up is not an effective counsel on, uh, constitutionally. So that's that's the crux of this case. But what makes it so infuriating to me anyway? What what this opinion is has been so inflammatory? There's several things. First of all, I find it very uh, frustrating in, in in any case, any criminal law decision, criminal case when the opinion goes to great lengths to describe in detail the horrific and disgusting crimes that the defendants in the cases are accused of or convicted of. Almost like they're trying to justify the opinion by pointing out how terrible these people are. And that's the case in, in this. And this, these are two men facing the death penalty. They're two different cases. And they, are, they have horrific facts laid out. Um, it's not necessary. Um, <laughs> the criminal, the criminal law, the system applies to you no matter what you're convicted of. So the fact that they lay out in detail the, the terrible things that these men are charged with—that's that's number one. That's just inflammatory. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I saw on Twitter, which was, uh, so I know I'm not the only one who was disgusted by it, is there is a footnote uh, in Justice Thomas's opinion. It was Justice Thomas who wrote this, and in it, he, he brings up the fact that the petitioner, the defendants in one of the two cases had said, you know, speaking of procedural default, when we were arguing all of this in the district court at the lower level, the state didn't even bring up the fact that I hadn't raised this issue in lower court. Justice Thomas's footnote says, well, we have the discretion to forgive a failure to raise the issue in the court below, so we're going to. So think about that. You are going to potentially be put to death because of uh, failing to raise an issue, and we're going to let that happen, but we're not going to hold the state to the same standard with a much less dire outcome. They didn't do their job. They didn't bring up this issue below, even though they were supposed to. We have the authority to forgive them for that. So the state here is forgiven. And this opinion is very heavy on the state's rights and what a burden it is on the state to be tied up in litigation over these claims and how they are they don't want to step on the state's toes by uh, interfering with convictions any more than is, is necessary. And, you know, very differential to state power and state rights. And that's that's very frustrating as well. And just the fact that they want to be this um, pedantic when it is death on the line, uh, it never sits well with me. You know, I think that when somebody is facing the death penalty, that is not the time to um, nitpick about whether or not uh, they should have um, raise this. What is it going to hurt in the long run to let these men put on the evidence that perhaps they did not have effective counsel? And, and in at least one of these cases, from what I have read, there is some pretty strong evidence in the defendant's favor that if the jury had heard it at his trial may have led to a different result. So basically, they are going to allow the state at this point to proceed to executions 
for uh, men because they had bad lawyers. And as much as I, I hate it, there are bad lawyers doing capital cases and appellate work, not so much with you know public defenders. I've talked about them before, especially when they're at the level of doing these kinds of cases. They're uh, very competent, great lawyers. But there are uh, a lot of, there are other attorneys that take these cases um, and that are not qualified to do it and they're not they're, they mean well but it happens there is unfortunately some bad lawyering that goes on here and you know you, you might face death for that and the fact that you know you're being held accountable for the failures of your lawyer your educated lawyer when you may not have much education yourself your lawyer makes a mistake and they say well that's your fault you know, that, and that's one thing when you're fighting over money, but we are fighting for their lives here. So I've gone on and on, so I'll stop there. But that, that's what's going on, and that's why I'm angry and why so many other attorneys are angry about this opinion. I'm Andrew Donson on the M. Carpenter Show, where she has just gone 11 <laughs> minutes on Shin versus Ramirez, but that's fine. That's what we bring her on for. Uh, we're going to continue to talk about this case, Shin versus Ramirez. Uh, also getting to a little bit more about representation, how it's fundamental to our system, but also how it keeps coming up over and over again. We start talking about the lower level problems in the criminal justice system, how representation at those early stages and lower level of the criminal justice system is greatly affecting a lot of the problems we're seeing even in the headlines. More with M. Carpenter on her tell right after this. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Donaldson, uh, joined by our legal expert, M. Carpenter. She's a frequent contributor to this program, uh, and she is the senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. You can catch her writing there. Um, let's get to some basics here, because this case, this Supreme Court case is about representation. How big of a problem is representation in the criminal justice system right now? You've been a prosecutor. Um, you've done uh, like all attorneys have to do. You've done uh work as a public defender type work where you have to do the pro bono work. How big a problem is this? Because when we start talking about things like bail reform, we start talking about things like pretrial confinement. We start talking about how the criminal justice system does a better job of making criminals than deterring criminals. A lot of those streams start crossing and kind of have their headwaters with representation, don't they? Yeah. Um, 
you know, it's one thing when you have an inexperienced attorney representing you in traffic court. Um, there, the, the consequences are not so dire, the stakes are not so high, um, and we have to learn somewhere, right? You know, criminal attorneys don't just go into court their first time with, uh, you know, knowing all the ins and outs and, and not ever going to make a mistake. But when we're talking about more serious crimes where the stakes are higher, where we're talking about life in prison or death, uh, there needs to be the most effective counsel possible in these cases. And the people who dedicate their lives to this kind of work are generally very competent and, and uh, very well versed in these cases and they're going to do a great job even the best lawyer makes mistakes okay and so even the best lawyer at a trial could lead to a valid ineffective assistance of counsel claim so it's not necessarily that the lawyers were bad or negligent although that is definitely the case at times um it's just there's so many little things mechanisms in the courtroom that uh, can lead to an error. Judges, you know, judges are reversed all the time and they're supposed to be the legal expert in the room, but they make mistakes. There's always going to be mistakes. So I think that that's the area where there needs to be deference and to not even listen to the evidence of the, that the defendant has or the argument that they have of that, you know, listen, there's all this evidence out there. My lawyer didn't even bring it up. And when you have, in, like in these cases, multiple levels of attorneys who have failed to bring that evidence up, I think you want to look at why did that happen? Were they lacking in funds to hire an investigator? Did they not have the money to pursue the, those those avenues? And it's always a quirk of the system, especially if you're a court-appointed attorney, which a lot of them are in these cases. When you want money for something, when you need an expert or you need an investigator, who decides whether or not you get that money? The state. The judge, the state, the very system that whose mercy your client finds themselves at, they decide whether or not you're going to, to get those funds. You have to ask the judge. And the, the prosecutor has the opportunity to stand there and argue against it, you know, and that's that's a, a serious disadvantage to a defendant in our system. How much um, pretrial confinement and simple procedural stuff? could be cleaned up by changing how that system of representation works. I know there's not enough lawyers to go around um, and there's especially not enough good lawyers. And I'm not trying to disparage anybody, but same thing with basketball coaches or shoe salesmen or whatever, you know, there's the really good. And then there's the really bad. And there's this vast gulf in between on the spectrum of good to bad, right? It's like any other profession. There's only so many good ones to go around. Um, is there any kind of reform or regulatory or legislative thing we can do here to take that burden off? Because it sure seems to me that a lot of the issues we're having in, in the criminal justice system starts there at those entry level kind of, you know, the initial hearings, the indictments, things like that. There, there seems to be so much room for reform there, but there doesn't really seem to be any answers coming on to what we can do about any of it. Right. And, and public defenders, especially in the lower level in trial courts, their their caseloads are humongous. And I've seen um, experienced, uh, very competent public defender, at least one I know of in, in my area, who lost his license for a while because he had a client sit in jail for months and he had not filed any motions or, and that was not purposeful or, int or intentional on his part. It was simply a matter of one fell through the cracks for him. Um, inexcusable. And, you know, he, he had to have received some sort of a punishment from the bar for that. And he should have, um, but when you overload lawyers with cases like this, that's, what's going to happen. And when, um, you know, 
your clients don't have bail and they're sitting in jail, um, you know, that impedes their ability to contact you. It impedes your ability. You can't spend all day sitting in the jail interviewing your clients. So it impacts, you know, how much time you get to spend with your client to prepare. Um, it, it definitely clogs up the system. So I don't think, I think bail reform on lower level cases is definitely uh, an avenue and into some higher level cases, depending on the facts of the case and, and what they're actually charged with. Now, do I, do I think that anyone charged with capital murder is going to find themselves in a position where they uh, should have bail reform uh, applied to them and that they're not going to sit in jail? Probably not going to ever happen. Um, but yeah, there, there are things that can be done to ease the burden on the attorneys, which in turn would help the clients. Okay, it is the loudest story in news and culture and politics. I suspect it will be this way probably for at least a month or so, if not longer. Let's go to one of our legal experts to break it down for us. He's returning to the show. One of our real good friends, Bert Lyko, attorney extraordinaire out in the Portland area. He's also a longtime OG at Ordinary-Times.com. He has one of them fancy emeritus titles, which means he does it when he wants to, and I'm very jealous of him for that. My friend, how are you today? Andrew, I am uh, I am beside myself with what has happened at the Supreme Court, but very very thrilled that you have invited me on your show to talk about it. Yeah, we're we're thrilled to have you. Okay, when I talked about this on the show uh, yesterday, I was basically reading. You sent it to me as an email, and then we turned it into an article because that's how we do things at Ordinary Dash Times on the fly. Sometimes um, you did a quick little write up of it. Let's start with some nomenclature though, because I, I want to make sure everybody's on the same page because we are dealing. We're dealing with one of the loudest cultural things of our lifetime. Uh, I put it this way on the radio this morning. This really is um, the convergence of the last 30 years of the culture wars. This is what everybody's been building for. This is what everybody's kind of been gearing up for. This is this is going to be loud like something we've never seen before. But we're dealing with black and white law here. So let's get our nomenclature right. Roe v. Wade, everybody knows that that's the abortion law. What does and doesn't Roe v. Wade do? And... In addition to that, because it's going to get lumped in here, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, which you you got to have them together to understand the full picture here. Just nomenclaturize real quick, just kind of overview those four so we know what we're talking about. All right. Um, you can spend uh, about three weeks on this in a con law class in law school, so I can get deep, deep, deep into the weeds if you like. Um, I would start uh, the, the case history uh, with... Um, I'd start it with Griswold versus Connecticut. That's a 1967, I think, case from uh, from Connecticut, obviously, dealing with access to contraception. And that case decided that uh, individuals have a fundamental right to have access to contraception uh, based on this notion of a right to privacy. Now, you will search the Constitution of the United States in vain for the word privacy. Uh, it's not there. Griswold used uh, what's called penumbral reasoning, saying that there are certain things that exist 
within the scope of different enumerated constitutional rights, the First Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Ninth Amendment, and the Fourteenth Amendment. And all of these enumerated rights have been interpreted to protect certain kinds of privacy. So uh, the idea didn't originate in the Griswold case. It goes all the way back. Uh, the, the earliest formal discussion of it goes to a law review article in Yale Law Review by Louis Brandeis in 1890. So we're not talking about something that the Griswold court made up out of whole cloth. Uh, but it was the first time it really got applied, at least in a very explosive sort of way in that Griswold case. With me so far. Yeah, I'm with you so far. And real quick, since you brought it up, there has been this all over social media today that uh, Roe v. Wade was essentially a privacy case. That's an oversimplification, even though the basis in the Griswold law was privacy. That's an oversimplification of what Roe v. Wade does as you go on to further explain it, right? Right. Um, it's important to understand that that Griswold case took this idea that Louis Brandeis had about a privacy right being one of the unenumerated rights and put that into law because the Roe court took a look at, at the circumstances of that case, a direct challenge to a Texas law criminalizing abortions and said privacy is one of the reasons why uh, we can't have a law criminalizing abortions. That's not consistent with the constitution because among other things, the Constitution protects the right to privacy. Getting an abortion is a very private sort of decision, one of the most intimate private decisions a person could make. So that is one of the foundations that is mentioned in the Roe case. The Roe case also goes directly to the Ninth Amendment and says you have a right to an abortion that you can trace just to the Ninth Amendment that says there are unenumerated rights and the ninth provides one of those. It didn't do a real good job of articulating what that right is. And this is where the Roe case has got a lot of criticism. It's a little foggy on the textual foundation for what becomes a, a limited right to an abortion. So uh, the second thing to understand about Roe is it does not provide an unlimited right to an abortion. Roe creates a, sort of a sliding scale as a pregnancy advances. So in, it, it decides, and there's no real good legal precedent for it. Uh, it just says that you have uh, a pregnancy divided into three trimesters. Uh, the first one-third of the pregnancy, the second one-third, the last one-third. And as you advance through the pregnancy, the state's interest in regulating that abortion, regulating potentially up to the point of criminalizing it, uh, will, will grow. So in the first trimester, the state has a very minimal interest as compared to the individual's autonomy in deciding whether or not to have that abortion. And then by the time you get to the third trimester, the state's interest has grown powerful enough that it can override the individual's decision. And the third concept that comes out of Roe that becomes important when we get to Casey 20 years after that uh, is this idea of viability. And viability gets to be really the turning point, both in Roe and especially in cases that come later. Viability is defined as the point that a fetus can survive on its own outside the womb. The case does not say 
what degree of technological assistance is necessary for the fetus to survive outside the womb. And that's another reason that you can criticize the reasoning in the Roe case. As medical technology improves over time from 1973 when Roe was handed down to today, um, a prematurely born baby can survive a lot longer because we have better technology right now and, and can, be, can survive uh, more and more prematurely, I should say. So um, that's, that's the basic idea of Roe, that you have a, um, a sliding scale of the state's interest over time coming to be, uh, coming to overrule an individual's interests. And there, there's a, a whole theoretical framework uh, that I have, a number of other lawyers have, that, uh, that we, can, we can go into, and that's uh, a real interesting rabbit hole. But that's the core ideas of Roe. There's other ideas too, actually, but we don't need to get into them today. How hard is it? Because here's kind of the, we, we know the cultural side of this. How hard is it though, when you're talking about the case law and you laid out a little bit of, you know, case law built on case law, it, it's a, it's a building thing. Mm -hmm. When you're dealing with this kind of case law, where you're also trying to deal with a medical certainty and a medical certainty that has a very uh, debatable point like viability. We've already mm -hmm. talked about, you know, uh, we normally now uh, 20 week fetuses are viable outside the womb, these sort of things. Isn't there just an inherent problem in trying to do case law with something that even the medical folks can't really tell you a good answer on? And we're trying to give a definitive answer on. Is it too much to say that this is one of those points of law where the law is just inadequate to try to explain this and there, there's just always going to be a tension here no matter what you do? There, there will always be tension about this um, because this is such a morally fraught issue and people of very, very good faith and very good morality are always going to disagree about this. That will never, ever change. It has never, ever changed since thousands of years ago when abortions were uh, first done with different kinds of uh, chemical inducements, uh, whether that was something that should be done or shouldn't, uh, ancient peoples discussed and debated amongst themselves. Uh, we shouldn't be so arrogant as to think that we will resolve as difficult an issue of this in uh, particularly in these modern times. What, um, before we get into the actual, what Alito is writing on this thing though, Compare this to like, and I know it's not a perfect match, but like Europe, there's a pretty set standard mostly across most of the developed countries in Europe. Um, they're usually somewhere in that 15 to 20 week range. We know the Texas law is the 15 week range, which was kind of designed to go at the court. We didn't get there because this came down first. Is, is the week, do we get lost in the weeds on the weeks and the viability part of this? Or is that really essential to the case law of how this is going to play out going forward? After we get the Dobbs decision handed down, uh, which we can reasonably suspect is going to look a lot like that leaked opinion that, that got put out on Monday, um, viability isn't really going to matter as much at the federal level. And it's going to be more a question of political choices get, that get made on a state-by-state -state basis. Um, I'm sure we're going to circle back around to that. Uh, some states may choose viability as a point. Uh, some states may choose to define viability at 28 weeks, 24 weeks, 20 weeks, um, and that's going to be based on, I would like to say it would be based on 
an assessment of the medical resources that are available in that state, but the, the practical answer is it's going to be based on uh, pretty much raw politics. Bert Lyko, attorney, our good friend, a writer at Ordinary-Times.com. He's already wrote about this. Uh, we're talking about the Alito brief, the opinion uh, that some folks are calling it a leak. I don't believe in leaks. I don't think anything's ever a leak. I think this was leaked on purpose. Uh, we're going to get into the actual brief right after we take a quick break. We're going to get into what Alito wrote, what it means, what it means going forward. And uh, he's going to explain it to us like we're five because I don't understand all this stuff. And he's really, really good with this sort of things. Bert Lyko continues with us on one of the loudest topics we probably will ever cover, unfortunately, as her tell continues. Uh, we're back with our friend Bert Lyko. Okay, we have some news now. Uh, you alluded to it. Chief Justice Roberts has issued a rare statement because I don't know how else he was going to do it, but it is rare for the Chief Justice to comment on uh, cases before they come out on opinions. He says this is a legitimate brief. He says it is, uh, or I keep saying brief, it's opinion. He says it's a legitimate opinion. Uh, it is an early opinion. We all know that from the big first draft stamped on the top of it. If you actually bothered to read it at ordinary-times.com and other places like you and I did. Uh, but it's hard to imagine this is going to be very markedly different than what is going to come out in June or whenever they get out to this brief. What's the first thing that jumped out at you about this? Was it that Alito wrote it or was it how Alito wrote it? Uh, the first thing that jumped out about it to me was that I was reading it at all. The last time that I'm aware of in history that an opinion has been leaked out of the Supreme Court to anyone uh, was uh, what the year would have been, I think, 1859, when it's likely the leaker was Chief Justice Roger Taney, who told President James Buchanan what the Dred Scott decision was going to be. And Buchanan went and spilled the beans to the public. Uh, talking to a newspaper saying that the Supreme Court was going to resolve the issue of slavery in the uh, federal territories very, very soon, and it would be a final resolution, and there'd be no need to worry about that for the election. Um, students of history will recall that this, um, this worked out rather poorly. Very poorly and very bloodily uh, by the end, of course. Let, let's do nomenclature one more time, though. You're talking about a leak, a breach of trust was the terminology, Chief Justice. This isn't like uh, Justice Kennedy had somewhat of a reputation for talking out of school, out at parties and out on the town, and he would talk about things like that's not what we're talking about here. This is an actual document from the court. This is a bigger deal than just gossip or somebody mentioning something or, or a Kennedy or somebody like that talking out of school at a party or something like this. How big a deal is this that this is one of the draft copies that was going around? The justices pass these back and forth. They go through many rounds of this. We know this. How big a deal is that? Is it the breach of trust that the chief justice called it? So um, let's bookmark going back to, um, uh, to, to the brief being circulated, because I think that's important to understand if you're going to engage in Supreme Court criminology. But um, how big a, a breach of trust is this? Um, it is an earthquake, uh, an earth-shattering violation of Supreme Court norms. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was still alive, was, uh, was famous for, among other things, saying that if someone in the media 
is trying to tell you that they know what the Supreme Court's going to do. You really need to uh, distrust that. Uh, and, and her phrase was uh, something like, uh, people who say they know what the court is going to do don't know what they're talking about, and people who know what the court's going to do don't talk about it. That's as strong a social norm as um, not speaking up when the minister says, is there anyone here who has any objection to this marriage? No one stands up and says, yes, I object to this marriage. You don't do that. Uh, this is as strong a social norm on Supreme Court as, um, you know, kissing your sister. You, you, you just don't do it. Okay, one of our favorites. She is the senior editor for Ordinary-Times.com. She is an attorney. Uh, she is a lot of things in the writing community, and people on Twitter mostly like her. Our friend Tim Carpenter is joining <laughs> us once again. How are you, ma'am? I'm well, Andrew. Thank you for having me. Uh, how are the HIPAA wars? <laughs> it's a very angry HIPAA. Got to be careful. <laughs> for those of you not paying attention, uh, since she is a lawyer and does uh, healthcare related things, HIPAA is one of her, um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, things of the moment she pays high attention to. So if you mess it up on Twitter, you're likely to get a tweet about it. But uh, today we're going to talk a little lawyer ease. You are a lawyer, one of them law splainer type people. What do you make of the ABA talking about getting rid of the LSAT? Now, we've heard this in the news a lot lately. Uh, there was some debate, I thought, pretty unfairly um, during the Supreme Court nominations about uh, LSAT scores. You wrote a piece of Ordinary Dash Times that pretty much dispelled that. However, uh, if we're going to get rid of something, we have to discuss what its actual use is. So let's just start there with the nomenclature. What is the LSAT? What's it supposed to be? And what is it being used as that folks want it reformed? The LSAT is the law school admissions test. And just to be clear, what the ABA is doing is they are not, quote, getting rid of the LSAT. The LSAT's still existing. What, what it is, is the rule um, that the ABA used to have for accredited law schools was that they were required to require an entrance exam, an LSAT or other. Um, some some used GREs, but they what they have done is they've said that they are no longer requiring accredited law schools to require an entrance exam at all. They still can, and I suspect a lot of schools probably will continue to do so for a variety of reasons. But the LSAT is a standardized test, like a, like the GRE or the MCAT, which is the medical school equivalent, and it is a um, an aptitude test to that's designed whether it does it accurately or well. I don't can't speak to that, but it is designed to determine whether or not uh, one per a person's reasoning skills, their logic skills, their um, whether they actually have a, a good chance of success in law school based on how they think, um, how they solve problems. 
their comprehension, things like that. So it's not a test about what do you know about the law? You don't know, you, you know, theoretically know nothing about the law before you have actually gone to law school. So there are no legal questions on the LSAT. So that's what it is. And the intention of it is to, as a measure, a metric to help law schools accept students who they believe have a chance of success. We went now. We went over this when we did the Supreme Court nomination hearings for uh, soon-to-be Justice uh, Jackson here shortly. Uh, just to tee it up, though, for the trivia buffs out there, how many law questions are on the LSAT? Zero. There are no legal questions on the LSAT. You are not presupposed to have any legal knowledge before you sit for that exam. You have not been to law school yet. They don't expect you to know the law. So just for the people that will never have the great pleasure of taking an LSAT, uh, I'm not one of them because I actually took the thing just on a large just to see how I do on it. What it, this isn't like a normal test. This isn't, this isn't just fill in bubble fields. This isn't, you know, flashcards. Explain to people what is actually going on on this test, because a lot of folks, maybe they haven't done logic problems and things like this. Just kind of given a little bit of an explainer of what the test is actually like to take. Uh, it's been a um, couple of decades since I took it, so I don't recall every section. Um, I know, you know, there are, like any other standardized test, where you have to read a passage and answer questions about it, And um, but my favorite part is, as you mentioned, the logic puzzles, and, and those are the ones where you have a list of uh, statements such as, you know, there are five people at a party and the person in red is sitting next to Mary. Mary's not sitting next to the person in green. The person in green is eating chicken and, you know, things like that. And based on the information you're giving, you are supposed to figure out where is everybody sitting, what color are they wearing and what are they eating? It sounds funny or um, confusing, but, and a lot of people really hate those puzzles. I love them. I have an app on my phone where I do them for fun. Um, so that's one of the one of the sections. And then again, I think the rest is mostly uh, reading comprehension and, and the ability to write clearly. And then Carpenter, when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about that actual law school experience. Uh, we're going to loan lead that into the student loan debate that's going on. Why law school is so expensive. Is that one of those prohibitive gatekeeping things? We've been talking about it and a little bit more about the LSAT, our talk with our lawyer friend, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com, and Carpenter continues on her tell right after this. Tell our good friend M. Carpenter, one of our favorites, one of the smartest people we know, great writer, senior editor at Ordinary-Times.com. Make sure you go check out all her work. She usually does Wednesday Ritz, but she's been a little busy saving the world in her day job. So that's been a little spotty, but she did do one last week. Thank you very much for showing up to work. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, that's a joke. I'm kidding. Uh, let's talk about that law school experience for just a second. Law school has always been prohibitive. It's always been tough to get into. It's always been extremely expensive. Are we reaching kind of a critical point, though, where maybe it's gotten too inclusive, too hard to get into, and too expensive? Um, too expensive, yes, I think it is definitely too expensive. I, uh, education costs, or not, not the cost, but the cost to the students, not necessarily the cost of providing that education, goes up all the time, goes up every year. Um, 
and in law school, just by way of example, when I finished college, I had about $16,000 in loan debt from my four years of undergrad. Uh, my first year of law school, for which there are no Pell Grants, um, my first year's debt from law school was 16000 And I know it's probably a lot more than that now, obviously, in 20 years that's gone up. Um, and I guess, you know, they expect that once you graduate from law school, you're, you know, you're going to be in a position to get a well, well-paying job and to pay those loans back with ease. Um, I'm one of those who did not go to big law, go to a firm directly out. In fact, I started out in a small town, small county prosecutor's office making about $30,000 a year. Um, so it's not the same experience for everyone. So uh, yeah, I think the cost is is a bit expensive. So depending on what you plan to do with your law degree, and if you want to be a public defender, which I've said on here before, in my opinion is the highest calling of a lawyer. If you want to make a, your career in public defense, you're, you're never going to make those huge salaries and, and pay back these exorbitant loans. So um, I think that's a good argument then for some debt forgiveness or programs for people who take those types of jobs um, and aren't making the big, you know, six-figure incomes. Um, as far as how much gatekeeping should go on for law school admissions, I think the best way to weed out people who shouldn't be there is your first year of classes. That first year, your 1L year, is notoriously difficult and, and some people say is designed to weed out those who don't have what it takes. Uh, yes, it's, a different, it's a different way of learning. It's a different type of education than people are used to. Um, take some adjustment. You definitely have to study. There's not as much ability to kind of skate by with uh, your, your intelligence without actually studying a lot. So a lot of people don't make it, don't come back at the end of your first year. Your second year, a lot of people who were there the, the year before are gone. Um, unfortunately, that means they may have been left with a year's worth of law school debt that they now may not have the money to pay back. So it, it's um, it's a hard balance. See, this is the thing people talk about lawyers talking to him, Carpenter, our friend. This is the same problem every other career field is currently having where the promise is, well, you get your college degree and then you get a great paying job. Well, the promise is you go to law school and you get an even better paying job. But the reality is there's only so many of those better paying jobs and there's a lot more lawyers coming out of law school than there are those great paying jobs, right? So the there's a problem with the pipeline system of saying, hey, go to law school and get a great job. I'll just take all this student debt. Law school, it seems like the law school, if anything, it may be even more predatory with the lending than with just the regular college stuff that we're seeing, isn't it? I think so. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't think attention is paid to those who are not going to to come out of the um, out of law school with a, a, a huge job. There's, you know, there's a lot of deferments and there's um, income based repayment options and, and a lot of uh, ways in which, you know, your loan payments can be adjusted, um, but they all have their downfalls. You know, the, the lower your payment, the longer you're going to be paying and the more interest you're going to be paying. Um, so there's a lot of, to, to, of considerations there. Um, you know, a lot of lawyers, when they hear people talk about, you know, 
they're, they want to go to law school, you always hear, oh, don't do it, don't do it. And, and they'll try to talk you out of it and say, you know, do something else. I would never do that. Um, I love, I love being a lawyer. I love going to law school. I think it's a, it is a noble profession. I don't care what you say, Andrew. Um, <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> you do make- it so I can lean on you and I don't have to do it. So yes, <laughs> you, I'll agree with you. You make a lot of lawyer jokes at my expense is why I say that. Um, but I think it's an, it's a good profession. It's a noble profession. Everyone hates lawyers until they need one and, and, and they actually get help from one. So I think it's, um, I don't, I don't want to dissuade people from going to law school. I don't want to encourage people to take on um, $200,000 worth of debt for their, their legal education. I certainly did not. Uh, and I know a lot of people want to go to the top tier law schools. So, you know, help to help them get that high paying job and, and and it might work out for them, but you can go to a, um, a school, a perfectly, perfectly good law school like I did, WVU. It's not uh, Harvard, it's not Yale, but I'm doing just fine. And I know, you know, I have classmates who have, who went on to firms and, and are doing very well. So I think that you know, you don't have to go into six figure or double six figure debt um, to get a law degree. You can do it. You just, you know, adjust your expectations, adjust your standards. You can do well and, and not incur that much debt. It's everybody thinks that you're going to. Um, every lawyer has two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of debt. That's not the case. Certainly not the case for me, and uh, probably not the norm. So I think that you hear the loudest, most egregious tales and egregious stories, but I think that it's still, it's doable. Um, do I wish that I had less debt? Yes. I wish I had uh, been able to pay uh, more of it at the time. A lot of law schools, WVU included, discourage or prohibit you to have a job while you're in law school, especially if you're a 1L in your first year, you are not allowed to work outside of uh, maybe perhaps a work-study job at the law school. So, you know, those are all things that, that go into it. And obviously, um, I didn't have the ability to pay for it out of pocket. So do I wish that I could do it all over again and skip law school? Absolutely not. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Ah, spring. Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about. In your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive. And that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com disclosures for details.